again, and so we knew we'd have a number of people that were traveling, some even leaving out today. But nonetheless, we're glad everyone's here. I hope you're enjoying this beautiful day. And tonight, we're going to have, we've been doing a lot of different formats and so forth on Sunday evening. Tonight, we're just going to have an old-fashioned study from the Word of God, and um, we're going to look at the very end of Romans chapter 5 down through uh, chapter 6. And while I won't talk about every word in there, I do want to focus on something that Paul talks about, a word that is used throughout. Um, I want to talk about the idea of being free. There is an old spiritual that says, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free in Jesus' name. And you may or may not know that song, but I'm free in Jesus' name. And while I'm not going to look at that song tonight and go through the words, it's a pretty good song. I encourage you to find it and and, uh, sing it. But nonetheless, I'm not going to look at it tonight, but I am going to look at the title of being free in Jesus' name. You know, if if I were a critic, so to speak, of the Bible, I think one of the things that I might do would be, because I like language and words and, and so forth, I might find phrases like the one that Wes just read for us in James 1 and verse 25, and I might say that it is the purest of oxymorons, that is things that can't be so and should not be so, uh, to talk about a law of liberty or a law of freedom. Because law has to do with restriction, being restrained what you can do and you can't do. And freedom, as we tend to take it, as we talk about liberty, I'm free to do whatever I want to do. Those are the extremes, and that's the way we think of them. But to have a law of freedom, if you think about just that phrase and you don't qualify it by anything else that is said, it doesn't seem to make sense. Now, I got to thinking about that. In fact, years ago, I got to thinking about that. And I began to think about... The idea of how we are free in Jesus Christ. And you've heard me say different things over the years, and I'm not going to repeat everything that I've said in former sermons and so forth, but just the idea of being free in Jesus Christ. And I believe we are. But I think we're free because we have chosen to be in Jesus Christ, and yet that does not mean we're free to do whatever we choose to do. In fact... While I'm not going to focus on that, there's a passage in 2 Peter chapter 2 that speaks of false teachers promising liberty or freedom to people. They don't have a right to promise, and they certainly don't have a right to take those freedoms. So tonight we're going to consider how Christians are free. You've got an outline. If you'll look with me at what I call the overview here, I just want to set the stage or set the thought before we go into Romans. How are Christians free? We're going to look at this passage in Romans that, where Paul talks about being free quite a bit, maybe more so than anywhere else in the Bible. And we'll also use this idea, I'm free in Jesus' name, to look at a growing belief among brethren. In our recent debate, well, the two debates we've had, Wes and I both have made comments about how it may not have affected you, but it might have, these different ideas. But that pointed out that there are brethren around the country that have bought in both the things we've debated. There are brethren who are divided over those things all over the country. Well, one of the things, back when Wes was a lot younger than he is now, about 20, 25 years ago, is when this was maybe 25 to 30 years ago now, when this was really beginning to crop up in Limestone County, where both of us come from. 
There were some radio programs and there were some preachers there. You may remember a few weeks ago I talked about being referred to as the zealot. This was during that time. And it had to do with some of the stuff I'm going to talk about tonight. But there were some preachers who were beginning to teach and beginning to preach and beginning to buy in, not a new idea by any means, but a very old idea. And technically, if we were looking at it from a religious point of view, it would be antinomianism. And you see that word on your sheet, which just simply means without law or against law. That's what it literally means. And so it's a movement against law. Now, these preachers were beginning to misuse Romans 6, and I'm going to point that out. And they were talking about being in Jesus Christ, we are free. We are not under law. We're not like Jews who had a law like they had in the Old Testament with all those ordinances, Galatians 3, you know, because of the trespasses, God gave all these laws, said don't do this and don't do that. They were preaching against all of that. And they were emphasizing rather the grace of Jesus Christ. So the idea was law was Old Testament times, grace, and they mean by grace, liberty, freedom, to do whatever is the point, but under Jesus Christ. So some of our brethren are beginning to buy into that. And we hear that, and I read that from time to time, and I read how they talk against law, and they talk against rules. If you remember a couple of weeks back when I had the sermon on hold the traditions, they really talk against tradition. The idea of things that have been passed down. They might walk into a building like this, and they would have a problem with about everything we do. Oh, you guys are singing these old songs. It's just a tradition. You guys are sitting in pews. That's just a tradition. You guys are, you know, you got a preacher up there preaching a sermon. You open up your Bible, and that's just traditional. And they would go on and on and really pick at everything we do. And while some things like that, among those things I just mentioned, I would say it's not the only way we can do it, but it's a good way. And so we choose to do it. It's profitable. They're really teaching against all of that. But that's not the worst of it. Then it goes from that to questioning all the laws. And all the traditions. Now, it's one thing for us to come in here and say, you know, on Sunday afternoon, yeah, traditionally we've been meeting in the evening for X how many years, and we sit in pews and we listen to a lesson and so forth. You know, it's one thing to question that. But when you begin to question baptism as a tradition, or the Lord's Supper, like we do it every Sunday morning as a tradition, and on and on we go, when you begin to question even the concept of a church that Jesus built, and it being the only one, and you keep going with that, then you get to the point of some brethren, and some brethren have gotten to that point, and I could call some names that some of you might even have heard of. Some of them are very well-known men, but they are men who are antinomial. They are against law, and they just don't see the rules and the traditions, not that have been handed down by the people that established this church 60, 70 years ago but by the apostles themselves coming from Jesus Christ. I want to talk about that. If we were to trace it back, we were to say, where did this whole spirit of an antinomianism, where did that come from? Well, it came from a philosophy that a lot of first century Christians, and yeah, I said first, century Christians bought into, that really came from a Grecian philosophy. So it isn't anything new. But, as it went through the years, there were two main proponents that are bought into today. 
So if we were in a denomination or we were among our own brethren who were tracing back and looking at the teachings, they traced back to two primary men. One of them was in the 4th century. His name is Augustine, or a lot of people know him as Augustine. Well-known individual. Another one was in the 16th century, primarily, the 1500s. His name is John Calvin. And if we were to look at the teachings of those two men and what we typically today want to call Calvinism or tenets of Calvinism, what you find is the lack of need for man to respond to God through law. And so we respond directly to God. He operates on us. He works with us. The Holy Spirit comes on us. However you view that. And there's all kinds of views of it. But what it is, in reality, is a rejection of the need for law, the need for the Word of God to convert and save your soul. Now, I want us to see if that's indeed what the Bible is teaching. So go with me to Romans. And I'm not going to teach all of Romans 5. That's a long, deep study in itself. But I want to pick up where Paul makes sort of a concluding point. If you'll drop down to the very end of Romans 5, about verse 19, and you can see this on your outline. Romans 5, verse 19, and I want us just to look at the first section, so to speak, that's used by brethren even but used by those in some of the ideas I'm talking about. So read this together with me. Verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. I'm not going to deal with that tonight, the whole inherited sin, total depravity idea. But he says, so by the obedience of one, he speaks of Jesus, shall many be made righteous. And that's where it begins. It's a misunderstanding of how the obedience of Jesus can make me righteous. And the question is, do I or don't I have to do anything to be righteous and be made righteous by what Jesus did? That's the question. Well, let's read what verses 20 and 21 say. And I'm going to key on the part and single it out that is emphasized, and then I'm going to look at it in context. So read verses 20 and 21. Moreover, the law, uh, moreover the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, notice this, grace did much more abound. Key on the phrase, grace did much more abound. Verse 21. That as sin hath reigned unto death, past tense, even so, emphasize this, even so might grace reign. Emphasize that part. But Paul says, through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus our Lord. Now, if I were looking at this passage and I were singling out the phrases, this is what I would say. I want you to hear me correctly. This is not what Michael believes, but this is what some brethren and many other denominational people believe. I would single out of this passage and I would say that we fell through Adam, we had sin, and we had no hope because of the sin. I'm not sure saying I would disagree with all of that, nuances of it, but not all of it. But the important thing would be, look at verses 20 and 21, that past tense, what would happen is you had a law of God, and the law of God said obey it, and obey it perfectly, and you'll be fine, but nobody did. Now the Bible teaches that, Galatians 3. So no problem so far. But then what it goes on to say is, where sin abounded, That is, you had sin, and a lot of people had sin, and we all had it piling up 
over centuries because nobody kept the law. Where sin abounded, he said, grace, that is, and they would look at grace as this system that came through Jesus Christ, did much more abound. Well, what does that mean? Look at verse 21 again. As sin has reigned unto death, they would say that's totally past tense. Not in your life, mind you, but the old system where there was a law. Even so might grace reign through righteousness. Now, this is what I'm saying in context. Look at this passage. Obviously, if you're buying into this whole philosophy that you don't have to do anything to be right because Jesus did it all, then you're going to emphasize the phrases I just emphasized. But in fact, look at verse 21. Verse 21 doesn't say, where once sin abounded because there was a law that nobody could keep. That's the way it's read, by the way. Verse 21 doesn't say, now God's favor abounds because God doesn't require obedience to the law. God just simply looks at what Jesus did. And because you've accepted what Jesus did, you are now under God's grace, and it doesn't matter what you do. Now, that's the modern philosophy. And that's what a lot of brethren have bought into. But is that what it says in verse 21? Look at it. Even so, my grace... I can take grace to be the whole system of Jesus Christ. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ, chapter, John chapter 1. I can take that, but notice what it says. Even so might grace reign through righteousness. You see, righteousness is doing what's right. Uh, Matthew 6, verse 33, when he's talking about food, shelter, and clothing, and the blessings to Christians that God gives. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That's something for you to do. You go looking for what is right to God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. You know, the point in the Bible, the New Testament, we can look at a lot of verses, but we can just look at it right here. Paul is saying grace abounds in Christians. Yes, God can forgive sin. Yes, because of what Jesus did. But not arbitrarily. God does it through righteousness. Now let's look at chapter 6 and see if that's not reinforced by everything Paul says. <clears throat> Paul was dealing with an antinomianism in his day, just like we are having to deal with now. Long before there was an, August, an Augustine or Augustine, long before there was a Calvin, long before there were our brethren buying into it. Paul was dealing with it in the first century. And you can go back and read about Gnosticism and the tying into Grecian philosophy. I'm not going to bore you with all of that tonight, but you can find that. And so some brethren were giving way to that. So Paul deals with it when he comes back in chapter 6 and read this together with me. Look at verse 1. That is keyed upon, again, by brethren. What shall we say then? We've looked at this whole idea of grace abounding. What shall we say then, Paul says? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul is making a, a, a really a philosophical argument here, but this is what Paul is saying. If it does not matter what you do, if the grace of God is so great that it covers every sin you do, that you do not have to do what's right, you don't have to obey the law, 
and God's grace covers all of that sin, then it would seem that you would have a greater amount of grace the more sin you do. And that really is almost taught. People are reluctant to say it like that, but they really mean it. Because here's the point. Which shows the great grace or favor of God? The innocent one-year-old that dies in a car accident tomorrow that has never sinned, nothing ever would cause that child to be lost, and God saves that child by His favor. That's grace. But which is more grace, to do that or a 73-year-old that dies after 63 years of rape, vile, ugly sin, and God's grace saved Calvinist, so our brethren, even in Limestone County, Alabama, would argue it's the latter. That's what shows God's grace. And I think what happens to us sometimes is we start thinking like that. Oh, yeah, sure, the baby's saved. But man, that person with all that sin is saved. Shall we sin that grace may abound? Is that what we're thinking? Is that how we're thinking? We're looking at this like the amount of sin just doesn't matter because God's grace. Paul says, if you're thinking like that, may that never be. God forbid, the King James says, or whatever your translation says at the beginning of verse 2, never, ever should we entertain the thought that it's a wonderful thing, it piles up grace, Because we do so much sin. In any sense to think like that. No, let's look at what it actually says. In fact, the life of a Christian from the very point of baptism. I want you to read the next few verses. You know them. But I want you to read it very carefully with me and watch the language here. Shall we continue in sin? Verse 1, that grace may abound. May that never be. How shall we, we Christians, he's talking about. How shall we Christians that are dead to sin live any longer therein. How can we do that? That just goes against everything we decided to be and to do when we became Christians. Don't you know, verse 3, that so many of us as were baptized into into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death. Don't you know that? Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father even so we also should be raised up as the idea with newness of life. Notice what he's saying there. It's like Paul saying in Galatians 2 and verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. Crucified with Him. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I anymore. But Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of or in Jesus Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul said, don't you know that? Don't you know that it's a different life, a new life? Read on with me. Verse 5, if we have been planted, buried together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that I went through a death, burial, resurrection when I became a Christian, that the old man is crucified with him, That the body of sin might be destroyed. And here it is. That henceforth we should not serve sin. Grace reigns 
through righteousness. I've reached a point in my life, Paul is saying, and I reached that point. I said when I became a Christian, from this point on, my life is different. And I hope you said that. And I really hope that it was a big thing in your mind and in your heart. So that you said, my life will be different the moment I come up out of baptism, my life will be different henceforth from this point on for the rest of my life. Because that's what Paul is saying. I don't serve sin. I don't serve my own desires of the flesh and the mind, Ephesians 2, 2 and 3. I don't serve the devil. He stalks me. He tempts me. He wants me to do. I don't do those things. And I make that choice to not do those things because I've been raised up to walk. Notice that. The end of verse 4. Purpose in my life. Action in my life. To walk in newness of life. Let's go on. In chapter 6, Paul, and, and you know the language here, Paul goes on to describe this whole idea of serving Christ versus serving sin. Of living your life in Christ rather than living your life in sin. But then Paul comes to a point where he will say, and I used to hear this on the radio program Sunday mornings, many Sunday mornings, where Paul will say in verse 14, at the end of verse 14, let's not even read the first part of it yet, but the second phrase in verse 14, you are not under law. Now, I know the King James and about half the translations out there say, you are not under the law. That is not what it says in the original language. And so brethren who read that and people who read that and read it to say you are not under law, but under grace, are reading what it literally says in the original. Okay. So at this point am I supposed to say... The Christian has no law he lives under. He has nothing that he has to obey. He just is under grace. So he goes out there and generally speaking, he lives a good human life, but not a perfect one, not anywhere close. And he doesn't worry about it. If he does good today, if he's presented an opportunity to tell the truth and tell a lie, and he tells the truth, great. But if he doesn't, that's okay. Because he's under God's grace. If he meets a temptation to sin with someone, you know, maybe at work, a co-worker, and he's married, but he chooses to do something with someone else, if he, do, if he denies himself, that's great. But if he doesn't and he falls, that's okay too, because he's under grace. And we could go on and on with that, with every sin imaginable. Is that what Paul is saying? Well, some brethren would say, well, why not? Because if you will go any distance with it, in any sense with that idea, then go all the way with it. In other words, if in your mind, to any degree, and this is all of us, you know, not just some denominational person or some brother out there down in Tennessee or Alabama or wherever, but if any of us in our minds have it in our minds that, you know what, it is okay if I sin. Because God loves me and He will forgive me. Then that's where we are. So go all the way with it. Be a Batesian Calvinist that would literally say, you can do anything you want to, die in the rankest, vilest sin, and God is going to save you. Once saved, sure. Always saved. Well, let's look at what Paul actually said. So we read the second part of verse 14. Let's, read, let's look at the context. 
I know, brethren, who say that Paul is defending antinomianism. In other words, you're not under law. You are not. Not any law whatsoever. Don't talk about rules. Don't talk about laws. Don't talk about traditions. You are not under law. You're under grace. And my answer is, that is not what Paul said. And so someone might come back and say like this to me. Because most people either believe that, or they believe that what it's saying is, you're not under the law of Moses, but under grace. And they would be quick to point out, Michael, you know better. You know that in verse 14 it doesn't say you're not under the law, meaning the law of Moses. You're under law. You're not under law. And I would say you're right. Because I don't believe it is saying in Romans 6, 14, you are not under the law of Moses, but you're under the system of grace in Jesus Christ. It is saying you are not under law, but under grace. But... What it is literally saying, and you can flip over to 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 17 and see a parallel sentence construction. Paul says, Christ sent me not to baptize. Well, wait a minute. We know he sent him to baptize. But to preach the gospel. It's a not but construction, as it's called in the original language. And here's what it means. You are not only under law. You are under law. But you're not only under law. You see... In the Old Testament, they were only under law. They had the law of Moses, and that was it. And the only grace they had was to look future and say, yes, yeah, someday there's a Messiah coming, and it's going to be okay. But they only had law. So the moment they sinned, they were lost, and they were forever lost until and if God did send Jesus. But he did. But it's saying you're not only under law. And it's not the law of Moses he's talking about. It is the law of Christ he's talking about. It is the law that is the law the Romans are under. You are under a law. You can look at 1 Corinthians 9 and you can see when he says, under the law to Christ. James 1.25 that Wes read for us. There is a law of liberty and you're under it. But it's not just rules that you're under. You are under God's grace. God has favored you. Now stay with me for a moment because it sounds like I'm contradicting everything I said. I'm not. You are favored by God. You are under the law and you are under God's favor but only if you understand your position and you act upon that understanding. Go back with me in the verses we left out and see what he says. Literally Paul is teaching the idea of being free. Go back with me again to verses 6 and 7, and let's start there and look at this. We're going to spend about five minutes just scanning down through these verses. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. All right, so whoever you were, whatever you were, and whatever you did, that dies. It's crucified with him. That the body of sin might be destroyed. And we understand that. When I'm baptized, all my sins are washed away. That whole body, that whole body of work, bad work that I did, washed away. Done away with it. Destroyed. That henceforth, from that point of coming up out of that water, standing there with it dripping off of you, from that point on, you should not serve sin. Okay, well then, what should I serve? And the word there of serving is to be enslaved to it. You should not be enslaved to sin. For he that is dead, that is the one who has died to Christ, been buried in baptism, raised up out of the water. He that is dead, notice, is freed from sin. Okay, what does that mean? 
I'm freed from sin. So exactly what does that mean? Well, it means I'm free from the guilt of it. If you were to ask me, you know, bring up some sin that I did when I was, you know, whatever, 16 years old. You say, Michael, did you break into that house? Did you break into that, you know, did you steal that person's money? The answer is yes. Are you guilty of that? No. Because it's been washed away. It's over. And you're not guilty of the sin. And you're not guilty of the, you know, you don't have the consciousness of the sin. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. There's no more conscience of sin. Well, what does that mean? You ever had your conscience bother you about something? Probably yes. Let me ask you a hard question. Do you sit here right now knowing that you're forgiven of a sin by God and your conscience still bothers you? I do. But you don't have to. And that's what I say to myself. And I find myself quoting Hebrews 9.14 to myself a lot. You don't have to feel that way. Why? Because God has removed it. There will come a day. I may cry tears over it till the day I die. The things that I did that bother me like that. There will come a day Jesus will wipe those tears away. And I will never have to think about it again. You don't have to have the conscience of sin. And I'll tell you something else that Paul is saying here. You're freed from the enslavement to sin. You ever said to yourself or known someone who would say about committing some sin and they do it habitually, and they would say to you, I have to do that. It can be drinking, drugs, sex, it can be all kinds of things, but I have to do that. Christian does not have to. Because the power of Jesus is greater than that drive to sin. And that's what Paul is saying here. You are free. You're free from sin. The law of liberty is a law, yes, in every respect of a law. But it is a law of freedom. And it frees you. From all the shackles and all the worst things that surround sin in this life, it frees you. Now let's read on with what it says here. He that is dead is freed from sin. Verse 8, now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dies no more. Death has no more dominion over him. And that would be true of us then as well. For in that he died... He died unto sin once, but in that he lives, he lives unto God. That's true of everyone who goes through this process. So verse 11, here's the point. Likewise reckon ye. The word reckon means like open a ledger and put it on an account. It's like having a bank account. You can read the figure there. That's what I have. Well, open this up and put this on your account, verse 11, that you also yourselves are dead indeed unto sin. You're not enslaved by it anymore, and you don't have to do it anymore, and you don't have to feel the things that people who sin have to feel. You're dead to sin. So he says that reckon that, that you are dead indeed unto sin, but you are alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, what does that mean practically? Verse 12. Let not sin, therefore, 
reign in your mortal body. Now I want you to go back, and if you're in the habit of drawing a line or noting in your Bible, again, note what we read earlier, and it's taken Paul basically 13 verses to come back to Romans 5.21. Grace reigns through righteousness. Look again at verse 12. Don't let sin reign, let grace reign. That's the point. But here, here is what it's really saying. Something is going to reign. Okay? This idea that I'm free, meaning I'm not subject to anything, is ludicrous. You're subject to one thing or the other. Your choice. That's why you're free. But you're not free to choose to be under nothing. I won't, you know, I'm not going to be under anything. Yes, you are. So let's read it. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof and don't yield. This is the idea of like a priest presenting a sacrifice. Don't present yourself as a sacrifice, he's saying, as the members of your body, eyes, you know, hands, feet, etc., as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but present yourselves, give yourselves, yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead. What's he telling you? Live like what you are. When you were baptized, your sins were washed away, and you were freed from all that. Then live like it. Choose to live like what you are. That's what he's saying. Don't choose to present yourself in sacrifice to sin. Present yourself to God. Notice verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you're not under law, are not only under law, but under grace. That's what he's teaching us here. And he goes on with it, doesn't he? Let's look at the last part of it. So brother might come down to verses 22 and 23, or Calvinist might, or anybody might. And they might read verses 22 and 23, and let's do this quickly. We know this passage very well. But now, now that you are a Christian, you've been made free from sin. Now, if I were a Calvinist or I were some of our brethren that are teaching this, I would look at that and I would say, you know what? I'm free from sin. I don't have to worry about it. It really doesn't matter. Is that what Paul is saying? Now, having been made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end is everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. You can see how they might twist some of those phrases. But let's look at it again in context. Now, having been set free from sin, I won't reiterate everything I just said in the last, well, it took six minutes. I won't won't reiterate all of that. But you are free. Free to choose to live like what you are. Isn't that what Paul is saying here? Let's read it. He goes back to the idea of baptism. Look down with me, if you will, beginning in verse 15. What then? So let's draw a conclusion. Shall we sin? Because we're not under the law? And the idea is not under the law only. Should we sin, but because we're under grace, may that never be. Same thing he said at the beginning of this. But he goes further. Don't you know, verse 16, that the one to whom you yield, present like a priest with a sacrifice on an altar, the one to whom you yield yourselves as slaves, and that's the, the word here, to obey, his slaves you are. So if I give myself over to some sin and I give myself over to Satan, the one behind all sin, if I give, I choose to do that, then I'm his servant. I'm his slave. 
I don't have a choice about being a slave. We all, all of us adults, are slaves to one or the other. Jesus or the devil. One or the other. And that's what Paul is saying. And don't you know that? His servants you are to whom you obey, verse 16, whether of sin into death or whether of obedience into righteousness. But God be thanked. He goes back to baptism, verses 17 and 18. God be thanked. You were the slaves of sin, but you obeyed from the heart that form, that pattern. The word that's used here is something literally that's patterned after something else. Baptism is patterned, death, burial, and resurrection, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You obey that form, that pattern of doctrine which was delivered to you. And being then, when you were baptized, being then made free from sin, verse 18, you became not free, free, free. I'm free to do whatever I want. It doesn't matter. God's grace. No. You became free to be a servant of God. That's what you became free to be. A servant of righteousness, verse 18. I speak after the manner of men, he says. After the manner of the flesh. He says, you know, I'm talking in terms that humans can understand, but what I'm trying to get across to you is that you have a choice. You are free. But you're free to choose the one to whom you give yourself. And if you want to say it the way it really is said, the one to whom you will be a slave. Because you don't have a choice about that. person will say, I ain't being a slave to anybody. I understand that. Uh, believe me, I understand that. I, you know, I was one of the worst at hating authority. I'm not doing what anybody says. Nobody's telling me what to do. Yes, they are. That's a fact of life. And really and truly, you are being told every day by God to do one thing and by Satan to do the other. And you don't have a choice about being told. And when you choose to do one or you choose to do the other, you choose whose servant or slave you will be. That's the choice you have. And so Paul says it just like that. I'm speaking like, you know, after the manner of man and the infirmity of your flesh. For you have yielded your members, servants, to uncleanness. And in iniquity, unto iniquity is the idea. Lawlessness is what it literally says. Antinomianism into antinomianism. Even so, now yield your members as servants of righteousness unto holiness. Now read this with me in closing. Here's the full statement he makes about verses 22 and 23. So here's what he says. You were the slaves of sin. You Christians who have obeyed the gospel, that's what you were. You were the slaves of sin. You were free from righteousness. You didn't have to do it. It didn't matter whether you did right or wrong when you were a slave of sin. Understand that. A guy that's out here that is living a life apart from God, he's never obeyed God, he's not a slave, a servant of God... If he chooses to do right today, it doesn't matter in the scheme of things. If he chooses to do wrong, it doesn't matter. Because in the end, he's lost. Because he is not the servant of God. So Paul is saying, you were free from righteousness. And all the shackles of, I've got to do what God says and I've got to do the right thing. You were free from all that. But then you chose to obey God. And he asked the question, verse 21, really? What fruit did you have in these things whereof you were, or you are now, ashamed? 
What good did it do? Anything you did, good or bad, what did it ever do for you, really, spiritually speaking? The answer is nothing. It didn't accomplish anything. And it didn't make it any worse. The first sin you ever committed was enough for you to be lost. So it really just didn't accomplish anything. The end of those things is death. But now, verse 22, you are free not from righteousness, but you're free from sin. And it does make a difference. And it does have consequences. You've become a servant to God. You have your fruit unto holiness. The more right you do, the more you choose to do what God says, the more holy you are. The more set apart, as we talked in that whole year about holiness, the more set apart to God you are. And the end of that, the consequence of that, is everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, it's not easy language. And it's not an easy study. But this idea that I just really don't have to do anything, or it just really doesn't matter if I sin. That is not what Paul is teaching throughout this passage. Shall we sin that grace may abound? May that never, ever be. Are you here tonight and you're not a child of God? Maybe you feel some of that that I was talking about. You have a conscience of sin. You have guilt of sin. You want it gone. You want to be able to say to yourself, I'm not guilty of that anymore. That's what Paul is talking about here. Very real sense, that's what he's talking about. Being forgiven of whatever it is. Being freed from that. Being in Jesus Christ. And it will matter every day what you do from then on. If you believe in Jesus, will you confess that? Are you willing to change your life? Will you be baptized like Paul was talking about? for forgiveness of your sin. Are you here and you're someone who's done that, but maybe you've reached the point and begun to think, like, it really doesn't matter, you know? Just do some good. It really doesn't matter if you do wrong. You know that's not right. Won't you please come while we stand and sing?